Welcome to Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger, the podcast for anyone who writes. Whatever types of writing you do, our goal at Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger is to give you a shot of writing inspiration by picking the brains of all kinds of professional writers about their writing and the writing life. I'm your host, Claire Lynch, and for this episode, I sat down with Tony Kutsumbus, founder of the UK's Great Debaters Club. In our chat, Tony talks about how learning to argue effectively can pay dividends, whether you're writing a proposal or presenting to the board. Tony also answers the question he's most often asked, how do you win an argument with your spouse? That's coming right up. Tony Kutsumbus, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. You founded and head up the Great Debaters Club. Can you tell me a little bit about the purpose of the club, what it does, and, and who your typical members are? Sure. Well, thank you for inviting me, uh, first of all. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so the Great Debaters Club um, is two things at its core. It's a membership organisation and it's a training programme. It's a membership organisation for people who want to learn how to debate, gain speaking opportunities in order to put their skills into practice, uh, and also meet other people who are um, similarly minded to improve the, the suite of skills that come along with debating, not to mention people who want to just turn up and watch debates and take part in them from the floor. Uh, the training programme, um, where we have a core membership of about 100 people, 110 people, um, that's designed um, to equip people with all those skills I was just referring to uh, a second ago. And these are all the different skills that, when combined, make someone ideally a really effective debater. They include confidence in public speaking, but it also includes research, being able to think critically, being able to deal with questions uh, on the spot and respond to them in kind. So can you uh, tell me a little bit more about that suite of skills and how those skills might spill over beyond the debating hall? Interesting enough. Um, the whole reason that the program has emerged the way it, it has is precisely because the skills people value in it um, go beyond the debating hall. Uh, when I first set it up, um, it was originally just designed to be a hobby horse. People like me who had done debating at university and wanted a place to carry it on. The people who joined, though, were those who'd been maybe five, ten years into their careers and had never joined a debate club at school or university and wished they had because they found those suite of skills, things like being able to uh, chair meetings, um, examine contrasting opinions, add uh, their own uh, contribution to those meetings with an air of authority and decisiveness, be able to respond to scrutiny under pressure, being able to speak in public with confidence and conviction. All those things were skills that they really needed to be able to advance themselves, especially those with leadership ambitions. Um, and that's a large part why they joined. So the programme is tailored in order to try and deliver on each of those uh, requirements. And where do you feel that writing skills may play into that? A, a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, arguments are written um, as well as delivered orally. Um, and it's also really important to be able to write down your thoughts and make notes um, even during debate as well, um, when you're speaking. I wouldn't recommend to anyone that they just go in and try and wing it, so to speak. So what you write down will really shape your thinking and your ability to, to, to speak on the spot. And so a big part of that is working out how to, A, filter your research to make sure you're just writing a, a tons and tons of pages that you won't be able to use. And second, and most importantly of all, how to, how to pair like written notes uh, when you're preparing to take part in a dialogue 
rather than a monologue, like giving a speech. Which could go anywhere. Exactly. So you can't really write a, a script for a debate. What you need to write instead are a sets of talking points, some of which may never even come up. So can you give me an idea of what a typical debate looks like, uh, how it works, and what sorts of topics your members might discuss? Uh, can you give me some examples of recent debates that you've had, for example? So typical format of the debates that we hold is that you have two sides, first of all, I guess the most obvious part, uh, two sides who are set up to go head-to-head to examine a particular question, present both sides of the argument, Normally have about two or three people on each side. There will be what we call a motion, so it's a statement of proposition that the audience have to vote on at the beginning of the debate at the end so we can measure the difference between those two results. Can you give me an example of what a typical motion might look like? Yeah, so um, the motion we're debating on Wednesday, for example, um, is we, we use quite a parliamentary terminology for this, is uh, this House believes that the Castor Semenya ruling is unfair. And that's about the debate surrounding the, the rules put in place by the IAAF about testosterone levels and what constitutes a female athlete. Are they always as current as that? Uh, yes, most of the time they are. But there are two key, two key criteria that need to be met um, for us to debate a topic. One, it has to be current. So simply put, we can get bums on seats. So our speakers have someone to actually test their skills on. Um, and second... There has to be gen- it has to be a clearly two-sided topic as well, where it's where there is there are good arguments on both sides and where the audience is likely to be divided. On that topic, what do you feel about the current level of debate? I personally find it incredibly depressing when I go on Twitter. It's not so much a debate as flinging of insults. Do you feel there is that it's been debased by social media, or that that there is room for people to to learn to debate in a more reasoned fashion than? seems to happen on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, so I feel that um, the quality of debate you get on Twitter and Facebook, and I agree with your characterisation of it, is a a negative consequence of a positive development. Uh, The positive development is that decisions, big decisions that affect the entire country are not just debated among small elite circles like they used to be. The elite groups of newspaper editors or uh, barristers in courtrooms or politicians in smoke-filled rooms... Uh, Now a debate is open, anyone can take part, and that's great. But the negative consequence is that back in the day when when debate was restricted to those elites, um, one thing we took for granted is that it was typically a member of that elite would have spent years training how to construct arguments, um, being steeped in a certain code of conduct and how to engage in a debate that always ensured they had a certain level of respect for their opponents, and that hasn't carried over because there isn't much in the way of formal debating education for the the, the average Twitter user to to actually benefit from and apply, and there should be. So do you feel that almost that the Great Debaters Club is playing a part in that larger democratisation of debate in that presumably a lot of your members aren't from the elites? Mm. It's certainly a key ambition of ours to to do that. One of the um, immediate priorities of, of, of the club is just to change the way debating is seen because the quality of debate as we see on Twitter and as we see on with uh, with with people who love to, to shock now on, on, on radio and TV debates even high-level politicians these days um, we've seen is that our debating as a discipline is being debased and is now filled with misconceptions if you ask the average person to describe you know what does debating look like they'll talk about shouting matches and punch and judy formats 
Um, and what so what we're trying to do is actually say debating is so much more than that. It's it's it is a way that a group of people compare options that are otherwise incompatible and then make a decision using a process that is acceptable to everyone, even if um, some people in that group end up disagreeing with the outcome. And making sure that process is seen as fair and legitimate regardless of the outcome is what enables them to carry on that process and repeat it when they need to have some very tough conversations and make some difficult decisions. So can you talk a little bit more about what that process looks like and also how it might look like in the wider world, for example, in the boardroom? Yeah, so boredom is a, is, a, is a good example of this because boredoms are having to make really difficult decisions all the time. And the types of decisions, the very specific decisions that I'm talking about, are ones where you have, um, where it's almost a binary question uh, put in front of you. So there are certainly plenty, I wouldn't recommend that, that everyone use debating as a format for resolving any kind of disagreement. There are some that would be terrible to use. For example? But, uh, for example, marriage counselling. <laughs> right. don't, don't try and win at marriage counselling. Um, but in a debate, but in a situation like that, and a boardroom is certainly where this is being applied, but my, my most personal experience of it is, is of being a juror and having to deliberate um, over whether somebody um, in the dock was guilty or innocent. Now, obviously, I can't, for, for legal reasons, disclose what was said or discussed in that deliberation room. But what I can tell you is that's a prime example of that binary question. And your first priority there is to make sure that everyone is happy with the fact that you're going to have to debate this question and stick to your, stick to your convictions and not not try and do the things that we're normally encouraged to do, which is to negotiate or to compromise. Because if you're in a dock and it's your freedom on the line, the last thing you want is for somebody who thinks you're innocent to negotiate away your innocence in order to satisfy the rest of the group. And that's where you really want somebody to be versed into how to debate as opposed to how to reach an agreeable or amicable conclusion, consensus, compromise and normal buzzwords we hear used as alternatives to debate. So we're talking about persuasion? I, I guess that's, that's a part of it. What you're talking about first and foremost is a rules and structure. Um, so the first thing you want to do, and going back to the boardroom here, is before you do anything else, before you start having the conversation, is to agree on a set of rules about how this, this, this debate will proceed. What's okay, what's not okay, how much time people have to speak. Um, what are you going to be talking about? What will this focus on? What will be the scope of the debate? And then you also want to set in place standards, which is more of a cultural norm rather than something like a fast and hard and fast rule, like making sure people avoid making personal attacks, making sure they don't deliberately misrepresent someone else's argument in order to make it easier to beat. So that's something we call a straw man fallacy. Mm -hmm. uh, that's more cultural side of it. Once you have those down, it becomes easier to then say, you know what, what we're going to do now is do something we wouldn't normally do, which is focus on the issues which we disagree on and explore the reasons why we disagree on them, even if they make us uncomfortable, and make a point of explaining why we come down on one particular side of the disagreement. And so the end result, the end goal, is not necessarily for one person to persuade the other, that's something that's always helpful, but it's more, the end result is more for the entire group as a whole, the entire board, to be able to accept the decision that was made, even if half of them disagree with it. As long as they can understand how the other half got there and why ultimately they, they won, say, 52-48 at the end of it <laughs> um, and, and be happy with that and say, no, we don't agree with this, but we understand how you got there and we will accept the result and we'll be happy to repeat this process. 
that's the objective. If you happen to change someone's mind along the way, then power to you, but that's the objective. So let's say I'm writing a proposal to take to the board. What would be the best way to structure an argument? The first thing to do is, is to make a question before the board as uh, simple as possible, because ultimately you want to zero in on what is the, the particular conflict that is going to require a choice to be made. So you don't just want to launch into defending purely your point of view and bombarding and overwhelming the board with, with facts and information and data. What you want to do is frame this debate and say, this is the choice we have between before us today. Ultimately, this is what we are talking about. And what I want to do is try and to help, uh, try and help walk you through why I think you should make this particular choice and then offer your key points. In terms of the structure of the, the individual arguments themselves, once you've set that bigger picture, um, there are three key things, three key elements to, to an argument that distinguish it from, say, an opinion. Um, an argument, first of all, needs to have a conclusion. So the point you're trying to make, where you're trying to lead your audience. Um, second, it needs to have um, some uh, analysis. So this is a statement of principles that are inform your judgment that you hold to be generally true and that your audience will accept as being generally true. And then finally, you'll have your data, the actual facts, the key facts that demonstrate why this principle that everyone agrees is generally true is specifically true in this situation and why that leads you to the conclusion that you are trying to defend. I wonder if you could give me an example of how that might look in practice. I thought of an example of, of this um, just uh, just the other day because I was trying to explain to a, a comedian how, how to how to uh, um, debate and so I was using an example from... <laughs> to deal with from, hecklers. From, from, from comedy. <laughs> well, well, more in how to structure an argument. Um, and um, I, so I'll use an example that I use with them which is how, what if they're giving advice to someone and what is the best type of joke to use um, and let's say what they're trying to advise them of is that the the best if you want to make your audience laugh then you want to tell them a joke about an embarrassing situation you're in your personal life right that that's that right there is the conclusion that's a piece of advice you're trying to impart on them that's what you want them to believe what you'll do next is move to is to explain why why people find embarrassing situations in people's personal lives funny. What is the reason for that? We normally have one or two reasons for why that's generally true, and then you'll move to the data part of the argument, which is, and I'm going to play some clips of comedians actually using this, and you're going to see why when people are faced with the same kind of audiences you're faced with, and they make jokes invoking this principle, they make them laugh. Here is here is the evidence. That's why I think you should, when you go to your first ever stand-up show, um, you should tell jokes about embarrassing situations to your personal. Is this episode inspiring you to be a better writer? If so, visit my blog, goodcopybadcopy.co.uk, for a wealth of writing tips and to claim your free copy of my ebook, The 200 Writing Tips That'll Get You Writing Like a Pro. And if you're enjoying the show, remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. Your support really means a lot to me because it helps get the show noticed. Now, back to the interview. Often your members are debating a topic that they may not know a lot about when they're given the topic, or they're arguing from a position that they may not really hold that opinion. We can explore why 
you might get someone to argue something that they don't agree with. Uh, but what are your tips for doing the preparatory research that goes into constructing an argument? Yeah, it's an excellent question because I get this asked all the time and the natural inclination of people is to try and make themselves uh, an expert overnight in a subject that they know very little about, which is a really unreasonable thing to ask anyone to do. Uh, and um, you know, in order to try and get them to do what I want them to do, which is instead just to first look at the typical arguments that are made by people who really do hold both of these positions, and regardless of what side they want, I want to look at both positions. Start there, and then start delving into detail to try and test some of those claims that are being made. And in order to get them to move from, from one strategy to another, um, what I'll try and advise them is to not think, try and think their job is to be uh, an expert um, for the audience, because when, when speaking or writing for an audience, um, on a subject that you're trying to inform on, actually approaching it like an expert tends 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 to not work all that well because you end up assuming so much knowledge in this part of the audience that a lot of it just goes over their head and you go into so much detail they just can't follow. What you want to, um, the, the kind of the role you want to see yourself playing is that of the reporter, almost like a journalist who's interviewing the expert and then is then relaying their expertise um, to a group of people, readers, um, who don't know anything about it and explaining it in a language that they understand. Translating journalists, it. Exactly, translating it. That's what you want to be doing. And that's why it helped start off just getting an idea of how do people talk or write when they're defending these opinions, uh, why do they think this way, how they reach these conclusions, and then that will give you an idea of what are the key talking points on both sides of the debate, and then you can start to go away and try and test those claims, and that's where you start digging in to do a little more primary research of your own, but it means that research is targeted, rather than trying to read an entire book on, you know, say, say the in the case of the debate we're having on Wednesday, on like the history of, of athletics, or of... Uh, the, the the science of gender classification. Like, no, don't do that <laughs> before. <laughs> Is that a mistake you see a lot? Um, I, I do. Uh, it's a mistake I've made a lot, especially <laughs> early on in my debating career. I don't, don't blame anyone for 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 reverting to that as their go to strategy unless they advise otherwise uh, to do so. Um, and the main result of that is that um, either people scare themselves senseless. So they're just reminded of how much they don't know and then feel even less prepared for the debate by the time it comes around. Um, or they end up actually being quite a very good study. Then they end up just writing pages and pages of notes and they they don't know how to simplify it and make it easy for the audience to understand. And they end up giving a very stilted, long and almost monotonous speech. That becomes exposition rather than argument, presumably. Precisely, yeah. So I touched on the fact that often you will encourage your members to argue a case that is the opposite of the one they believe. Mm. What are the benefits of that? The, the, this answer does divide opinion, I find, sometimes. Uh, because the, the short answer is, is because I, I value and think that we, as a society, should value integrity over authenticity. And what I mean by that, so now they just sound very abstract terms. Uh, what I mean by that is there is a, an instinct, this is the reason why it divides opinion, there is an instinct to want to defend your own personal opinion, your own viewpoint, and that you're seen as being, as a fear or being seen as disingenuous if you don't do that. And there's a lot of resistance, even from members of the club who come to learn how to debate sometimes, 
about doing that. And some people who are not members of the club almost balk at the idea of being asked to do that and almost almost to the point some people think offended or at least bemused I would ever ask someone to do that. The reason why I do is that authenticity, um, in my view, is, is overrated. Even though it is a buzzword and it is something that people really value, and for good reason, it's overrated when it comes to trying to make a really difficult decision because your job as a debate, I can use the word advocate here because that's the way I want my members to see themselves. Advocates trying to advise an audience making a very difficult decision. Their job is not simply to tell them why they feel so strongly about an issue. Their job is to, to compare the very best arguments in favour of doing or believing something with the very best arguments against doing or believing something. And you can't do that unless you have a very good understanding of what are the best arguments against your own point of view. And in my experience, the best way to fully understand what those arguments are is to actually try and defend them yourself as if they were your own in front of an audience who has no idea where you actually stand. Until then, you won't really understand exactly why someone might take the opposite point of view. And people do often report changing their minds, not the audience, but the debaters, over the course of preparing for a debate by doing that. Uh, the second smaller benefit, but still useful, is that it helps to depersonalise debates as well. Because the audience won't know where the speakers actually stand, but they will know that they are that they will be charged with defending whatever viewpoint I assign them, whether they agree with it or not. And as a result, when it comes to scrutinising those speakers' arguments, they're less inclined to judge that person, that judge to less inclined to judge that speaker personally because they are aware that they are just an advocate for that point of view. And that speaker in turn is more likely to approach this from a slightly more level-headed perspective and to try, especially if they're arguing against their own point of view, to try and, to try and walk the audience through the, their argument as calmly as possible because they're less likely to go into rant mode, which does happen sometimes when you're defending something you passionately believe yourself. And bringing it back to the workplace, is that an, an intellectual habit that you would encourage any of us to have if we were trying to persuade our boss to pursue a certain course of action, say? Absolutely. But again, I'll come back to the point made earlier about the importance of, of structure, rules, standards, do this in the right environment. Uh, because sometimes if, if you just try and play devil's advocate in the course of, of uh, just normal everyday office conversation or written communication, that can backfire. The Google employee um, who very controversially submitted a, a memorandum um, around pretty much all Google employees, uh, which was basically critiquing their diversity policy, claimed he was playing devil's advocate. And whilst I would certainly encourage people to think differently and defend change opinions, just doing it through sending an email without really telling anyone that you're doing that or that having some kind of structured environment in which everyone's clear that's their job is to evaluate these different perspectives and potentially defend perspectives that they may not hold themselves or just controversial, just doing it as if it were just another email, another communique, can seriously backfire if people think that you are generally proposing a new policy or defending a viewpoint you, you actually hold without any kind of clarity over why you're, you're doing this exercise. I want to ask you a question that I know that you're always asked. I know you said uh, you shouldn't use debating for marriage guidance, <laughs> but the question you are always asked is, how can I win an argument with my spouse? 
So I'm going to be very annoying here, and, and I'll say um, the best way to win an argument with your spouse is to stop trying to win an argument with your spouse. <laughs> um, the, the moment you see it as a, as a win-lose uh, battle um, with them is, is the moment that you're, that, that, that you're both likely to end up losing as a result. Relate, for example, um, have, have uh, extensive guides on how to deal with these situations, including addressing that very question as well, and it, it, which is normally uh, make a point of trying to understand exactly where your other half is coming from. Um, why is it that they are objecting to whatever it is, whatever it is you are saying? It's not a matter of just backing down and giving the other person what they want. But it's more a matter of trying to understand where they're coming from, and and then and from that trying to reach some kind of negotiated settlement, because there comes back to the different forms of dialogue that are most appropriate in different scenarios. When you have two people, or even a bigger group of people, who who require some kind of consensus in order just to be able to count on each other's support to to go forward, whether it's in a marriage or whether it is just in any kind of like commercial partnership, even going back to the boredom example. Then you do. Then negotiation is probably a better form of dialogue because the objective of negotiation is ultimately consensus. Um, the only time that you are likely to really want to fall back on on debate in the context of, say, a, a spousal dispute is if you feel that the the options before you are either I convince this person um, to 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 do or to believe what I want them to believe, or the relationship can't go on. And if that's a choice you're having, that's a very serious conversation, then that may be a time where you, where you have to make it clear, this is the choice. You know, it's either, you know, it, it's either this or me kind of uh, debate. And even then there, there are constructive and destructive ways to approach that debate. That's the only time I encourage going about trying to have that debate. And, and even then, the argument to be won is less with the other person and more with yourself about what you are willing to, to, to cede to the other person, at what point does it become too much? Like conversations over kids, for example, whether to have them or not, is that a deal breaker? That's more of a debate for you to have with yourself rather than with the other person. You mentioned the importance of putting yourself in their shoes, and I certainly feel as a writer, putting yourself in the reader's shoes is the first and most important thing you should do. What role do you think empathy plays in persuading someone to be convinced by a particular argument? A massive amount. It can't be understated. Um, empathy both with, some, with someone who you are actively disagreeing with and empathy with the audience you are trying to persuade. Um, if you can't understand why somebody might hold a, um, a different point of view from, from yours then you don't really understand the argument you're critiquing. And if you don't understand the argument you're critiquing, then why should I uh, really trust your critique of it? Uh, that suggests to me that you don't really know exactly what are the best arguments, the best reasons to be on your side of that particular debate. So what I look for when I see someone trying to convince me of something is that they have a very good understanding of why someone else might uh, disagree with them or might just feel some intuitive uh, resistance to what it is they're saying. Tony, it's been fascinating talking about debating with you today. Before I let you go, can I subject you to the quickfire round that I subject all guests to? What fuels your writing? Coffee, tea or something stronger? Oh, good question. Um, I tell you what, um, one of the, the articles actually got most... Uh, 
most attention as people asking me to, to, to come along and speak at stuff afterwards was fueled by beer uh, rather than <laughs> coffee or tea. So I, I won't discount that one. Uh, but, no, but for the most part, normally it's just a, a, a copious amount of water. Um, what was the article? It was an article about um, the uh, economic crisis in uh, Greece because my family's from Greece. Uh, my, my, my father's side is from Greece. My parents live in Greece now. I was talking about the Greek crisis um, and about how it was uh, misunderstood in this country. And, and seven years ago, I wrote this now, so I'm trying to remember exactly what I was arguing for um, in that particular piece. But it was actually about trying to um, change the way that crisis was viewed um, in this country. When do you like to write? Maybe if it's fueled by beer, maybe the, the answer is implicit in that. But when do you like to write? Oh, you're log or an owl? I am most of the time a lark. Um, in that article, I was an owl. I wrote that like midnight. Um, so it, it, there is an element of you know just when the moment takes you. Um, but for the most time, for the most part, I am a, a lark, and my most productive times are between the hours when we've about um, eight and twelve in the morning. Are you a planner or a plunger? Do you draft a detailed outline or would you dive right in? I would definitely say I'm more of a, a planner, but I also try and avoid planning too much because I, I find that I can over plan and get lost and multiple rabbit holes when I try to plan everything. So what I'll normally try and do is just write a, a skeleton argument, if you will. I'll start off... Um, trying to follow my own advice really starting off at, at its core at its core with just a very short summary of what is the point I'm trying to make in this article and then I'll try and grow the article from there and build it up so I'm almost starting from the middle if you want and then building up and up to the beginning and down to the end from there and would you describe your desk as clear or cluttered definitely cluttered Although cluttered to me is offers a form of uh, clarity because I'm I'm one of those people that um, if I start putting stuff away, I forget where I put it. So I have clutter because everything's visible, which makes it easier to find. <laughs> Musical silence. I'd say I'm not sure. I'm not sure which of these categories it fits into, but white noise okay. I find really useful. I need some sound. I can't work in silence, especially not in the place like a library, for example, because I do get very easily distracted by sounds. And the minute I hear one single sound in silence, it becomes just excruciating. So I need some kind of um, background sound, but music can be distracting as well, especially if I enjoy it. So just normally some white noise or just some instrumental music. Who's your favourite writer? My favourite writer by far, um, and I'm, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that you didn't specify a particular type of format yeah, here, yeah. so that's all right. Uh, Aaron Sorkin, screenwriter. Okay, yeah. Um, one of my all-time uh, favourites. Um, I, I, mainly because um, he writes a dialogue here, so obviously what I do is, is teach people about dialogue. I can't say I'm a massive uh, fiction writer, though I did love um, the Douglas Adams series, and I love reading R.C. Clarke as a boy. Um, but in terms of person who I could quite happily just uh, read their material form the scripts he writes as well as watch the products of it and shows like The West Wing, um, Aaron Sorkin all the way. Do you have aspirations to be a script writer yourself? If I was any good at it, um, I might. I, I, had, I did get given as a birthday present one of those online masterclasses I have lifetime access to mm -hmm. in screenwriting. I have tried it. I did try 
um, converting my favourite short story um, as an Arthur C. Clarke story into a screenplay, um, which I found out later actually had been done by the Sci-Fi Channel and apparently didn't go very well. But <laughs> it didn't. Maybe it just had the yeah. wrong writer there originally. Uh, finally, what's your best writing tip? The best writing tip um, is actually one that I will pass on that was given to me when I used to work in uh, media relations, where the bulk of my job was writing press releases and writing information that was designed to make very complex technical pieces of work, like 200-page reports for the police or for, for the NHS, accessible to the public and journalists in a one-page press release. And um, the advice I was given by my director of communications uh, when I was working for the police on my last day, when I was moving, I asked him, what's your piece of advice for me? And he said... Um, stop trying to write beautifully all the time and focus on writing clinically instead. And you will be far easier to understand. One final question. If people want to join the Great Debaters Club, where can they find you? They can find me in a number of places. They can find me um, online at the Great Debaters Club, greatdebaters.co.uk, just Google Great Debaters Club, or Debating London, which is the name of our, of our public debate series that we hold in uh, Vauxhall uh, twice a month. Uh, so they can also find us in the place where we hold our debates, the Tiaz Theatre, a lovely, comfy place, on the first and third Wednesdays of the month in the evenings. Um, they can also find us on Facebook. We have an open group. They can find us on Meetup as well. Thank you very much. It's been very entertaining and illuminating to talk to you about debating today. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you listen. And if you could leave a review while you're there, that would really help me get the show noticed. As ever, visit goodcopybadcopy.co.uk for free tips and advice on writing and the writing life. Until the next episode, bye from me.